Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show that we do where we talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. My name is David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's talk about the stuff we've seen. Yeah, we've got a, we've got what's called a hard out. We got someone coming in very soon, and so we want to make sure that we get this done. So, David. Yeah, I guess it's up to me to start. I've got well, I've got four movies and a TV show to talk about. We're going to make it quick. I got four movies and two TV shows, but the movies are all three of them are rewatches. So two fine. of mine are rewatches. Okay, but I, they're still movies. So we each have four movies. So I'll, I'll get okay. started. Uh, I watched a movie, a documentary that I think was at Sundance, but I saw it on HBO. I, I wasn't at Sundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, on HBO, I saw a documentary called Larry Kramer in Love and Anger. Okay. Uh, Larry Kramer is the guy who wrote the play The Normal Heart, which was an HBO uh, made for adapted into a made for HBO movie last year or two okay. years ago. That sounds familiar. Uh, and he um, is, uh, is I mean, he's still alive now, but he was in the 80s and 90s one of the most vocal AIDS activists in New York City. Oh, okay. um, one of the one of the main voices in. Um, the group Act Up, which were heavily featured. Did you ever see the documentary How to Survive a Plague? From oh, uh, no, but I remember you, you really liked it, right? Uh, I did. I liked yeah. it quite a bit. It's very good. And he's he's in that uh, as well. But this was specifically about him. And it's a really interesting documentary because it. Um, uh, one of the things that I find so fascinating is that now, the, like, as, you know, obviously the fight against AIDS isn't over. AIDS right. has not been cured, but there was, you know, starting in the mid to late nineties, there were, it, it, it sort of stopped being a death sentence. Now. Yeah. You can live uh, on these cocktails and the movie argues fairly well. I think that, um, he, his, uh, often <laughs> vitriolic ways, um, w- were a big part of the reason, uh, why that guy that happened as soon as it did. There's a guy who was actually a like government employee during the, in the eighties and nineties, who was one of uh, Larry's. Um, they, I think respected one another, but when they would appear on shows together, they would, uh, Larry Kramer would just really tear at this guy. And mm-hmm. this, even this guy admits like this happened when it did because of Larry Kramer, because mm-hmm. of, because of how much he pushed. But what I like about the documentary is it also shows at the time there were a lot of people who like in the movement who didn't like Larry Kramer. He had, uh, partially because act up was a completely, uh, I guess I'm not sure what the word is. There were no leaders in act up. Okay. It was, uh, you know, run, everything was run by the group, but he would show up in meetings and just start shouting. And you see him do this thing, uh, w- with the guy, the FDA guy I'm talking about, uh, on the shows where, the FDA guy will start talking and Larry Kramer will like get very excited, interrupt him and start yelling at him. And then when the FDA guy tries to talk again, Larry Kramer will say, let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> you just interrupted the guy. Uh, and so this like annoyed a lot of people, but mm-hmm. it goes back even further. He actually in the gay community, uh, had made some enemies to, uh, um, but before AIDS or at least at the start of AIDS, because he had been arguing that basically in the, the, the movie sets him in the seventies. There was, you know, the, you've heard of the sexual revolution mm-hmm. and a lot of that in terms of the male gay community was about being open about the fact that we are men who have sex with other men. And like, mm-hmm. we don't need to hide that. And that's a big part of who we are. We need just to be not shameful, but enjoyable. 
And then at the end of all this, Larry Kramer is coming along saying, Hey guys, maybe it's long term, maybe a little damaging for us that our entire um, outward identity seems to be about sex and sex alone and we are completely defined by the That's he, interesting he uses the phrase cocks and asses a lot we're completely <laughs> and he also says uh, fucking and sucking a lot so there's a lot of that type is of this gilbert godfrey <laughs> yeah. um and so he had made some enemies i think at that point by by seeming like uh he was trying to shut down what the gay community at that point viewed as right. a victory that they'd won you know yeah. by being able to define themselves uh in that way and so it, it really is interesting that there are people now who I think sort of begrudgingly are like, yes, he was a very important voice in the <laughs> fight against AIDS. I still don't like the stuff that he had written before then, or even the tone of some of the stuff. And that seems to be the, a, lot, a lot of the consensus, even the people who agree with him, like no, yeah. he's a, he was a very combative person. Uh, but it's a really interesting documentary. It's only about 75, 80 minutes long. What's so, it called again? Uh, it's called Larry Kramer in love and anger. All right. Sounds good. Sounds very interesting. And it's available on HBO now or okay. HBO go or whatever. You, I was, yeah, whatever I was just about to ask that. All right. Um, I rewatched, um, basically I had three watches, uh, three rewatches, and then I'll get to the, the one I just saw in a moment. Uh, in preparation for last week's more than one lesson, I rewatched the master, First time I've seen it since oh, I saw it in the theater. I listened to that more than one lesson, though, by the way. Did you? Yeah. Why? You said it was good. Oh. <laughs> so I listened to it. If I'd known you were going to listen, I would have, I don't know, done better. Um, was it in an interesting episode? It was actually a great episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I, I really liked your guest, or your guest host. Yeah, uh, Robert, Robert. Yeah. Uh, what was his last name? Hornack. Hornack. I really liked the episode because Robert being, I would call him, He's not a hater of the master. No, no, no. But he's, I think he has skepticism about the master. And so what you ended up, what the episode, a large part of it turned into is a sort of a very articulate cataloging of the possible problems that people might have with the master that you get to address sort of one by one in this completely respectful and again, articulate way on both sides of the, so it wasn't people like saying, Oh, this movie's, you know, this movie's pretentious or like people saying, Oh, it has no plot or you don't yeah. know about the characters. He was saying all that stuff, but not in a dismissive way. And you were addressing it, not in a defensive or combative way. It was a really interesting, uh, two hours and 20 minutes that is what yeah yeah uh that is what robert brings to the show which i <laughs> which i actually uh, appreciate a lot because i i think i think it helps you get to the bottom of something not even the bot it's not like you can figure out the master but like it helps you explore something to have somebody who doesn't agree with you completely and uh and so robert's been on a few times like i did an episode about uh black swan years ago back when he was just a guest and um and he didn't really like the movie. Uh, and uh, it was my favorite movie that year. So like by unpacking it, like I feel like I wound up, I wound up with a deeper appreciation for the film uh-huh. and he, uh, I think he still didn't care for it, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. And so, um, uh, well, thank you for saying so. And listeners that is available over more than one lesson.com. Uh, but yeah, I was very happy to rewatch the master and it is, you know, I, I feel, it feels somehow wrong to, speed through it in the movie journal format but you know anything that can be said about it i feel like has um especially in the two hour and 20 minutes certainly yeah (laughs) just head on over there um but what i will say is just um it is interesting because i did watch as we mentioned on that episode i did watch going clear a few times because on more than one less we covered that as well and the master does take on different 
properties as a result of like once you once you see going clear like when you see footage of l ron hubbard and then you see philip seymour hoffman he's not trying to be him but he does pick up a couple of things you can tell and it's really interesting really uh, from that standpoint watch the john houston documentary you guys were talking about yeah it's on, on it's, on YouTube, it's on youtube oh it's on youtube and it's called yeah. let there be light mm-hmm I really want to watch that. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, that that was uh, <laughs> maybe even something that instigated uh, the the making of the master. But um, just obviously, like it's the the performances are astounding to me, um, and I think Joaquin Phoenix. You know, it's we we talk a lot about how the Academy gets a lot of things wrong. Um, but every once in a while they will nominate very seldom award, but they will nominate uh, a performance that's just like that shows that someone's paying attention. Mm-hmm. The one I always go to is Robert Forrester for Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. That's a film that with a lot of great performances and a lot of them are a bit more are, are showier and it'd be easier to get to focus on those. Not that they're any, not that they're bad. Pam Greer's I think great. Mm-hmm. Um, was she nominated? She was not. That's weird. And, and neither was Samuel Jackson. Like both of them, I think were up for golden globes, but I do think like the heart of the film is very much her relationship with Robert Forrester. And he, I think he sells the reality of the, of, of the film a little bit. He's sort of an entry point, but anyway, uh, I, and, I guess I just feel like, uh, I know we're trying to rush through this, but okay. like, uh, I wonder if part of it is that like, not that Robert Forrester had been like, not working, but yeah. Tarantino at that point, like he had done the, he had gotten a lot of credit for like resurrecting John Travolta's career. Yeah. And I wonder if people were sort of fairly or not putting Robert Forster. I mean, Pam Greer is obviously on, sure. but because Oscars are separated by gender mm-hmm. and as far as the male slot goes, mm-hmm. putting Robert Forster in that place of like, Oh, this is the guy that Tarantino is resurrecting. Yeah, now. that's true. Which I still like that he does that. And I have said until until it happens, I will keep saying that I want Tarantino to write a part for William Peterson where hmm. he's a, a badass or a villain or something. I think that would be awesome. I think it'd be interesting to see him do something with like Eric Roberts or something like that. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh, but the, the reason that I brought that up is because, you know, while. Well, a lot of people assumed that Joaquin Phoenix was going to be nominated for an Oscar. That kind of performance is not the kind of thing that the Oscars can get behind a lot of the time. Uh, but they did. He did not win. Nobody could win against Daniel Day-Lewis that year. Um, but the fact that they nominated him at all, because like Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's a supporting performance. There's a showy quality to it. So I think that one was locked, as was Amy Adams. Joaquin Phoenix was very much up in the air. And mm-hmm. so for them to have nominated him is actually very exciting. Um, and his... You know, when I think of the movie, I tend to think more of the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, but he, like the characters themselves, his performance is elevated greatly when he is going up against Joaquin Phoenix. Like the most electric scenes are when the two of them are together. That the process, the first processing scene is, I think, like one of the best scenes in film for in the last like 20 years from an acting standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint. So anyway, the master Look, you've all, you've all seen it anyway. You're fans of Battleship Pretension. You've probably seen it. But if you haven't, it's available on Netflix. Go watch it. Uh, I watched a movie that I've been meaning to watch forever, and I'm so glad I did. I very much enjoyed it. It's from 1942. It's directed by Jacques Tourneur, I think. Okay. And it's called Cat People. Oh, I've never seen it. I've heard it's it's produced by Val Luton, and it's often, I mean, uh, Val Luton produced a lot of these films, and is they're so, t- kind of like, 
I guess like Roger Corman that sometimes they're so talked about as being like Val Luton films. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, but it was directed by <laughs> yeah, yeah. somebody else. Yeah. Um, that's, I always forget that like, it's not a Val Luton directed film, but, uh, um, anyway, it was like, I think it was based on a short story that he had written. It's very much him. And it's, uh, I mean, I guess it's a horror movie, but it's not. Yeah. I mean, there are some very eerie parts and the idea of, uh, you know, the idea of, I guess now they're thought of as like jump scares is the, the, the overused term that people use, but like a bunch of eerie things are happening. Maybe like you think, is there someone waiting? Is there someone around the corner? And then mm-hmm. something benign, but very sudden happens. Okay. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. And then you jump. Uh, I think that was like, it started with cat I think people. It might have, Cause it's a part where she like the, the woman, not the cat woman, but yeah. the other woman, um, she's literally the other woman. She's in love with, the cat woman's husband. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh my. She's walking late at night down the street toward the bus stop. And she feels like something's following her. You don't see anything, but you hear things. The wind is blowing. There are shadows. Mm. It's very creepy. It's, and she's yeah. very paranoid. And all of a sudden the bus pulls up without you realizing the bus was close. And it's just like, you know, and it's that like, is a very modern idea. Yeah. Like just, <laughs> I think of that as something that maybe came out in like the eighties or something. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's and that, uh, uh, it's fantastic. Um, but, so it has these sort of moments and it's a part with a, uh, like, I guess in a, a swimming pool that it's like a, it's like a basement swimming pool at a hotel, mm-hmm. um, with all the lights off. That's also a very, very creepy scene. Um, but really it's, it's almost like, I don't know if you'll know the reference. I don't know if you've ever seen the teaser of the first ever episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have not, but I'm going to I appreciate the deep cut. Well, yeah, done. I'm going to spoil, I guess what happens. It's, it plays on your expectations. The opening of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where you see two kids, a guy and a girl, and the girl's very sort of innocent, you know, uh, almost dressed like a Catholic schoolgirl, like an archetype of like, you know, oh yes, innocent. no, I have seen it. You've, okay, you've, yes, that's and it's right. Julie Benz um, is is the girl in it. But uh, a, a guy and a girl like on a date sneak into the high school at mm-hmm. night, you know, and they're and she's like, oh, are we going to get in trouble? You know, and he's like, well, don't worry about it, yeah. babe. Like he's yeah, the trouble. He seems predatory. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he's like sneaking her in and like putting the moves on her and then in the hallway. And then, you know, uh, she, she's like, are you sure no one knows we're here? And he's like, yeah, no one. And then she's like, good. And then turns into a vampire and kills the dude. Yeah. This is like a movie length version of that where you think that where the, the woman is the, the protagonist, mm. but, and the villain of the, yeah, uh, yeah. of the movie because uh she comes from a line of people who have some sort of cat curse mm-hmm. or whatever and uh if their passions overtake them they can turn into cats mm-hmm. into like panthers essentially nice. and kill people and so she is in love with this guy and marries him but won't like give in to her passion for him hmm. because she's afraid of what will happen and so this guy starts essentially starts a relationship uh, yeah, with he, a woman he works with because he's looking for the passion that yeah she, and this woman uh loves him and so she uh ends up i guess um i guess the difference between i mean the the buffy thing is that mm-hmm. julie benz's character <laughs> the vampire is you know, the demon from the beginning, like her intentions are set in stone. This is different, uh, in in that the exact thing that she's trying not to become is what she becomes. 
and it's not even though yeah this guy is kind of fucking around on her although he's mostly like he's still cares about her and you don't see him actually consummate this affair yeah but you can he's like leaning towards cheating on his wife but he's not the asshole right yeah it's it's somewhat i mean it's somewhat understandable right yeah it's a really interesting movie and again only like 70 75 minutes which i love yeah uh very moody um and uh i love big cats (laughs) so i'm I'm always into that that's my favorite place at the zoo is wherever in at the st louis zoo i don't know if they still do when i was a kid that that area that neighborhood of the zoo was literally called big cat country that's what they called it like on the map you get big cat country i'd make a beeline when i go to any zoo i'm obsessed with lions jaguars panthers cheetahs all that stuff i i could just i could the rest of the zoo could go jump in a lake and i could just look at these uh, cats some of the zoo would be quite comfortable in the lake yeah yeah uh i I, so uh yeah the movie's right up my alley so favorite animal dude what do you think when i was young i would um my go-to answer was cheetah I think as I get older, it's probably more likely Jaguar. But, okay. um, it's interesting. Yeah. It, in that, in that, in that family, big hard, cats, yeah. hard to say, probably elephant, you know, that you remember that old thing that, uh, was it, um, Chris Matthews and Newt Gingrich, yeah, yeah. two guys what, who what about just a black mamba. <laughs> God, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but yeah. look that up. I don't care if you hate Chris Matthews or you hate Newt Gingrich. You probably hate one of them. Yeah. Just watch this interview just for the very end. We when, can all find something in common yeah, when they just decide to set the politics aside for a, center, for a second and focus on the fact that apparently they're both big zoo nerds. Yeah. Newt Gingrich <laughs> is a big zoo nerd, which is I think kind of delightful actually. I, I find it very endearing. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, Chris Matthews says, what about a black mamba? <laughs> Cause he's, he's, he's like, what about the reptile? Uh, what about the reptile cage? You like, uh, not cage, but like the reptile house. You like yeah. the reptile house? New King Rich is like, he goes, he goes, yeah, it's so fascinating. You know, they they just do things so much different than we do. And just, uh, I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, I think my, my go-to, my zoo go-to, uh, is, uh, uh, rhino. I like Rhino. I, sure. uh, I don't know why. Uh, and that's a recent ish development. Um, but actually, uh, between that, I guess I like uh, pachyderms because uh, I love elephants. Sure. I love just looking at elephants. But That's up uh, there, definitely. But I like rhinos as well. And I, and a freaking like two weeks ago, I don't remember. I don't remember if it was the African black rhino, but like a species of rhino was declared extinct. Oh, wow. and it's like you know, I, I don't have a pet rhino or anything like that. But it's just like things still go extinct. Are you shitting me? Yeah. Like it's it made me very very angry. Did you know that, speaking of big animals, more people are killed by hippopotami every year than crocodiles? You think crocodiles are like apex predators and stuff. You think like, oh, they're killing machines. More human beings are killed by hippopotami than crocodiles. Well, David, here's the thing. So I watched a movie. This is not one of my movies from Movie Journal. I saw a movie recently. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Congo. Uh, That's where you are the endangered Uh species. Uh You know that? Anyway, um... And obviously the killer apes are the primary evil animals. Yeah. Right behind that. Well, you know what? Right behind that is probably man. What yeah. do you think of that? Uh, but then bringing up third place, the bronze is a uh, hippo. There's a hippo attack in Congo and it's very frightening. I should watch it again. Yeah. Apparently they are killers. And, oh, and which is funny because they're like, I mean, I know they're huge and everything, but yeah. hippos are adorable. Oh the yeah. First that are called hippos. Yeah. I've said it and, on the show before. Shark. 
<laughs> Sounds terrifying. Right. Snake. Crocodile. Crocodile. Hippo. <laughs> yeah, like you, you can cute. hippopotamus. And they look like big pillows <laughs> with heads on them that are little pillows. <laughs> that are also pillows. Yes. They're, like, like, like literally they're like their body is a pillow. And then their head is like two pillows. Yeah. And their teeth are basically wine corks. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, like they're adorable. Couldn't possibly be sharp. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's delightful. Anyway, All right, what we, did can, you watch? we can move on. Um, yeah, I watched, uh, oh, so also on Netflix, I was, uh, this is a thing that happens and I should have, I should have known that it was going to happen. I was just looking to kill some time while I was like eating some food and then I was going to get back to work. And so I threw on our friend Rodney Asher's film room two thirty seven Cause I had seen the nightmare recently and I was, and I was like, Oh, I'll watch this again. And, um, yeah. Okay. I wound up not doing work for 90 minutes uh-huh. because that film just pulls you in engrossing. so quickly yeah. and so thoroughly. And it's just such a, you know, it was one of my 10 favorite movies of that year. Um, it's such a wonderful celebration of everything that film and art in general can be. And, but it also underlines what can be frustrating about it, which is other people also have opinions. Uh-huh. Um, but if you, but you know, if you, I think if you, um, if you embrace the, the nature of art, then even that, even the idea that somebody could have an interpretation that is actively someone, you know, I could have an interpretation of, of a film in which I, I think this movie is saying that David Bax is an asshole. Uh-huh. And even you in that moment would be like, Hey, to each his own. I'm, I'm glad you're <laughs> engaging with the piece. You know, <laughs> you might be bringing some bias into it, but, uh, and that I think is what the, what the film is about. And I, and I actually know some people, for example, uh, aforementioned Robert Hornack, um, who did not like that aspect of it. He just thought it was just, a that Rodney just found a bunch of crackpots and, and, uh, huh. and it was just like, and I was talking, I was having lunch with friends, friend of the show, Kyle Anderson and Robert. And we were talking about room 237 and Kyle and I were like, no, isn't this like, isn't that an amazing thing that just that? Yes, these crackpots ha- are, have theories that I think are often ridiculous, but at the same time, some of them make a certain degree of sense and I can at least see where they're coming from. And isn't that exciting? Isn't that fun that, you know, one movie can have so many reactions now realize how many movies there are and how many pieces of art there are in general. And that's amazing and wonderful. And that's the, it's the rich tapestry of humanity. And I think that's <laughs> room 237 is exploring no less than the rich tapestry of humanity. Okay. On to my first rewatch. Okay. This is a movie, we've talked about these sort of movies before, we did a whole episode about them, but movies that we love but don't want to watch again because they are so disturbing or Mm -hmm. so upsetting or something like that. And so I, because this movie devastated me and has devastated pretty much anyone who's ever seen it, I had been putting off for years, over a decade, I guess, rewatching Dancer in the Dark. Mm, Okay. And I rewatched it again the other night, and I'm so glad I did. I don't, it's... Have you seen it? Uh, yes. Oddly enough, I don't remember much about it because it came out like 15 years ago, right? 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw it on video at the time and I remember David Morse Mm -hmm. and I remember it feels somehow like not coquettish, but just elf, just fairy like, uh, uh, Bjork. And, but, but, but I think I'm, I'm, putting what we know Bjork to be. Right. I think I'm putting that on the character when I think back, because her character isn't necessarily like that. No, I mean, you know. she does have some, you know, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I mean, I guess she has some quirks and yeah. and stuff, but she's, you know, she's a single mother who is yeah. going blind and the premise, you know, that her son has the same disease. Mm. He's going blind too, but he doesn't know it yet. Yeah. And she's trying to save up while renting a trailer on David Morse's character's property and working two jobs, trying to save up enough money to pay for the, uh, operation yeah. for, for her son. Um, anyway, I'm so glad that I watched it again. Uh, it's not knowing how it ends. I wasn't as, and I guess just being, girded for it i wasn't yeah. as devastated um uh as i was the first time i watched it um because that ending is i mean that's just uh, it's the exact i guess i don't want to spoil it for people who don't know but the literal very ending of the movie is like you know it's coming and he mm-hmm. uh large rancher still manages to make it happen so suddenly and disturbingly that uh, it it's still a, a kick in the gut. Um, I can't think of any more Von Trier of an idea than, yes, you know it's coming, but that's not going to save you <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think what stood out, it's, uh, I guess I, the reason I bristled when you brought up Bjork and characterized her as her sort of outlandish, yeah, Persona, that's, yeah, that's that was that wrong of me to the do. The thing that I no, I mean, it's it's not wrong of you. It's it's morally being, wrong, babe. <laughs> you know, being uh, glib, which is what we do on the show. But having just watched the movie, I think what stood out to me probably even more now than it did fifteen years ago is how amazing her performance is and how much of a kind of a bummer it is that she hasn't done more acting. Apparently, because and there was talk of her being nominated for an Oscar that year, but she was not. Um, Apparently she had an awful time making this movie and hates Lars von Trier. Um, and maybe that, you know, that essentially being her one and only performance may have colored the, the acting process for her in a way that has kept her from doing more roles, which is too bad. She's walking around just being like, I assume every director's like Lars von Trier, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm not doing this again. Yeah. Um, but she is, uh, she's amazing. Um, Peter Stormare, whom I forgot was in the movie is great. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, the movie is so it's almost two and a half hours. It's incredibly depressing and it doesn't have that much of a plot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does have the one thing I guess I can say what happens is that she ends up killing David Morse's character. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of accidentally on purpose. It's a, it's a pretty wrenching scene how it happens. Um, and that's sort of, so the first half of the movie is about her saving up for the, operation and the second half is about her trial and everything for having killed a person while still trying to make sure her son gets this operation. That's the, that's the premise of the movie. And that's the only, that's it for, for all, for as depressing as it is. And the fact that he shoots it on, especially in retrospect, pretty ugly digital video. Yeah. I do remember that. It's so incredibly watchable. Like I think Lars von Trier is such an outsized public persona and such a divisive persona that, uh, sometimes it's easy to forget that he's a really fantastic craftsman, you know, and people couldn't have done the people who did the dogma 95 movement movement mm-hmm. couldn't have made it successful if they weren't, didn't already have a baseline of yeah. uh, skill and competence uh, and artistry as, as filmmakers. And it really comes across just how uh, I guess what's interesting to me about him is that, for as much of a, I don't know, 
<laughs> controversial maverick or whatever as he presents himself in his uh in, in his personal life most of most of the filmmaking in any of his films is pretty conventional in terms of shot choice and uh editing mm-hmm. you know and there but then he adds in a few things um uh, often a lot of like intense close-ups or like he does dogville which is like a traditionally made film except for the fact that it takes place in a soundstage mm-hmm. where instead have you seen that movie uh the the uh the anti-our town right that's <laughs> yeah. that's the way uh, it, i've seen yeah. i've seen some of it yes uh but i mean he's there's a lot of classical filmmaking in him yeah. um and this it comes across in this because dance in the dark is a musical mm-hmm. um although it uh, the one thing i had forgotten is just how long into the movie it before it becomes once there's a musical number then there's a bunch of them mm-hmm. but it's a long time into the movie where where do you remember the musical numbers uh well i remember the song because she was nominated right uh-huh. i remember uh is it the i've I, seen it all i, I think seen, that's i think yeah, that's, that's the, the one. one she does with peter stormare but she does most of the singing i think that's um, the one yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, but the way the musical numbers, and then we'll move on. The way okay. the musical numbers come into the movie is that she hears things like she works in a factory, mm-hmm. or she hears in that in that one it's a train going by. She hears rhythms, and then those rhythms turn into the music. And there's a really interesting thing. Like I said, it's well into the movie before the first one happens, but there are a couple of scenes while she's working where it starts to drift before you realize, like if you didn't know it was going to be a musical, you start to hear things from her point of view. Like you're just this factory scene, yeah. but you start to hear, Oh, I think there's a rhythm to way, the way this factory is going. And then something like takes her out of it or shifts shift ends and the whistle yeah. goes off or whatever. And I really like that, that it, I, I really would love to, I, I think that I think of this a lot when I watch movies um, that have a reputation. Like I would love to show this movie to someone who knows nothing about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how would that, how would the fact that it's a musical play to someone who had no idea who Bjork was or that this was going to be a musical? Yeah. I didn't know. And <laughs> remember being, cause yeah, it's, I don't remember exactly. So how long did you say it was like, it's a while. Know, but it's, it's almost like yeah. halfway. Yeah. Like, it's like alien, <laughs> except instead of the alien, <laughs> yeah. it's music. Yeah. Um, I mean, if the movie's two hours and 20 minutes, it's probably an hour in before yeah. there's a musical number. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't, I mean, it was 2000. I was still fairly young. I wasn't doing a lot of research into the movies that uh-huh. I was seeing. I, I, it's like, Oh, I hear this is good. Let's watch this. And you know, it's kind of a, for lack of a better term, dour and yeah. certainly again, visually ugly film. Uh-huh. And then, Oh, I mean, in, in the, the film stock or whatever, he sure, still sure. chooses shots that are, that are compelling. He knows, yeah, he knows what to do. No, yeah. What I mean is, yeah, just it's, it had a very specific look because of the thing, how it was shot. And also there's more color in the musical sequences than in the other parts of the film. Yeah. And I, I need to rewatch this partially because as I've said, as I've said many times, one of the big things that I were, that I learned at school was how, and something that I've certainly taken note of as time has gone on, um, is how important sound design is. And mm-hmm. this is a movie that incorporates really interesting yeah. sound choices that I certainly didn't recognize at the time. Um, but I think I would now there was something you were going to say that we kept stepping on. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I do not recall. There's something about the factory noises or something. I oh, it remember. was probably that it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, right, what's next for you next for me? Uh, all right. Jen and I went and saw uh, Jurassic World again because she really <laughs> she really loved it and uh, and I enjoyed it enough and listeners again one of my I wouldn't say proudest but I saw so much in Jurassic World that uh, nobody was talking about but I think is genuinely there 
Um, and people got so wrapped up in how not good of a story it is. And fair enough, it isn't, um, that I don't know, like I, I appreciate it way more thematically than I do, uh, cinematically, even though some of those attack sequences are very, very pulse pounding and exciting. Um, so I was excited to, so I did a little mini sode about Jurassic world over at more than one lesson. And, um, and I was excited to see the movie again and be like, all right, maybe I am completely uh, out to lunch when, with, when it comes to this. Maybe I'm just, I was just looking for stuff that wasn't there. And all I did when I saw it again was see more of it. Um, because one thing that I had noted is that the film, there's a lot of uh, reverence for Jaws in the film. Now, you, you think it's going to be the opposite because they show the Massasaurus uh, chomping that great white that dead great white shark you think that's them saying yeah screw you jaws and i and for a number of reasons i uh, that are plot based i won't say like one of the big ways at the end that they kind of say yeah when it comes right down to it jaws is where this all started but throughout it all this time uh i saw there's a scene where these two kids are being attacked by the big bad dinosaur in in that like little uh gyroscopic bubble thing it's called indignant rex right that's the one yes it's like ignominious rex (laughs) oh my oh if only (laughs) um and so uh well done and so but the way that is uh the way that scene is handled and the way the kids drop out of it and then run away while the dinosaur is still dealing with it is very much Hooper in the cage. And then there comes a moment when Chris Pratt finds that and sees a tooth sticking out of it. He pulls out a knife and uses that to pry the tooth loose. That's Hooper, uh, in the looking at the hull of the boat, uh-huh. uh, underwater. And then there's a scene where the, those two kids are in the back of uh, like an ambulance and it's driving away and the Raptors are chasing them. And what do they throw at them? Why it's an oxygen tank. And it's huh. just, it's f- it, like, it's fascinating just how much of a tribute to other movies or more specifically the, the building blocks of what makes Jurassic world, Jurassic world uh, within the film. It's ah. Oh. So excited. It's nice to know I'm completely right. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I want to have someone on the show who hates Jurassic world, which should be pretty easy to find. No problem. And, uh, have you guys go at it and then yeah. I'll just take a smoke break. Well, and again, story wise, character wise, I can't argue with them except for, again, some of the attack scenes are, are really well handled, but, um, yeah, from a story standpoint, it's, it's as weak as any other, uh, as any other movie, but I think that there's a lot more going on there. But anyway, so moving on, um, I my final rewatch uh, is a movie that I think it, it would, it's not going to be in my top ten of all time ever. Mm-hmm. But I think the top if I made my if I like you had a top hundred, this would probably be in the top half of that. Okay, twenty five to fifty maybe somewhere. Okay. And I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it's Duck Soup. Oh yeah, the Marx right. Brothers movie. Yeah. Um, and I had uh, I it had been long enough that I had, I had just forgotten. Um, how I, how economical that movie is in terms of being fairly short and yeah. having as many jokes per square inch as it possibly can. Yeah, uh, and being very lively. Like you mm-hmm. know, even when I mean, it has musical numbers, which are things that sometimes I guess that's uh, yeah. Both my rewatches had musical numbers, mm. um, but I sometimes forget that Duck Soup has musical numbers in it because I don't think like when I think of 
the Marx Brothers, I think of either, you know, Groucho Marx talking right. or, um, I guess, uh, Chico also talking, or I think of the physical comedy of, yeah. of Harpo. Never think of, I never think of Zeppo. Um, well, you know, <laughs> speaking of Buffy, do you know the, uh, have you ever, have you ever told you about, there's an episode called the Zeppo. I'm, that's yes. I think Xander struggling with the idea that he's the, you know, least important member of the team. Yeah. And so they do an entire episode where the team is fighting some sort of apocalyptic mm-hmm. demon that's coming into the thing. And it just follows Xander's story. His like D plot becomes the a plot for the entire. So you just get glimpses of like Buffy and angel, like having this passionate, like this might be the last time we see each other. If we don't save the, save the world or whatever. And it's just Xander, like trying, you know, trying to stay out of trouble for an, and it was, It's one of my favorite Buffy episodes. Of all time, and it's called the Zeppo. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I, but yeah, what I'm saying is even in the musical numbers, they're not that long and they have jokes in them, mm-hmm. uh, themselves. Uh, but mostly to me, it's just about um, Groucho and to some extent Chico and mm-hmm. the kind of jokes that <laughs> are definitely corny yeah. and are so up my alley. You know, he says, uh, get, uh, uh, I say we give him 10 years in, in Leavenworth or 11 years in 12 worth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, damn it. And, he, and then Chico has some sort of like... Uh, um, riddle that like uh, he's like being interrogated on the uh, like you know during a trial mm-hmm. but he's like said he has a riddle like what has four legs a trunk and lives in the zoo or whatever and the prosecutor says that's irrelevant he says that's exactly right there's a lot of relevance in the zoo um, <laughs> that's uh, that's so up my alley <laughs> that I like I'm a, well, that prosecutor sure was accommodating in the way in how he responded, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but there's a, I have no qualms about um, laughing out loud when I'm watching a movie alone. Mm-hmm. And I know some people don't laugh out loud when they're alone, which I don't understand. Well, I usually uh, don't, but it's not because I feel self-conscious. I just, for some reason, I, it's, I don't. But other times, I very much will. Um, so yeah, I watched this movie alone. My, uh, wife was in Las Vegas with her, with her sister for Mm a, you know, sister weekend uh, in Las Vegas. And so I, I watched, uh, dancer in the dark and duck soup, uh, in cat people while she was gone. And I just, Oh, I was just rolling on the floor, uh, watching duck soup. I love it. I could, I could watch it, uh, once a week. Fair enough. All right. What, what about you? Would you? Watch? All right. So this is this is the only movie that I've seen this week that is not a rewatch, and I watched it last night because it just popped up on Netflix. I didn't I didn't know it existed. Um, it's called Lost Soul, and it is the oh, I know about that. it is the story of Richard what Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau would have been. And one thing that I you know it's 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 interesting. There seems to be. Um, and maybe this is maybe this has always been the case, but it seems like for the last several years there's been this interesting trend uh, in documentaries about movies that might have been, whether whether it be Jodorowsky's Dune mm-hmm. or uh, the Death of Superman Lives or this, just you know, and and movie fans watch it and they see so much potential. And then invariably the heartbreak when probably a studio executive makes a bad decision. Um, and that's kind of the case here. Although at the same time, I can definitely understand the studio executives issues because it's absolute chaos because you have a filmmaker who's a little bit insane and like, 
you know, had his witch doctor friend, uh, like perform a ceremony so that he would get the job, you know, and let's, in, and by the way, let's incorporate, uh, Marlon Brando into that and a very egotistical Val Kilmer. Yeah. And it's just absolutely insane. And I will say, I saw the Island of Dr. Moreau in the theater with my dad. I was excited to see it at the time and I really liked it at the time. Uh-huh. I watch it now and I still like it, (laughs) but I like it for different reasons. Now I like it because it is batshit crazy. Marlon Brando is having the time of his life and Val Kilmer is a a lot of fun. And, and the makeup effects are wonderful, of course, Stan Winston. But, um, and, uh, and so this, so the, the eventual, it seems so strange as a film lover that they would bring in John Frankenheimer who like was had a string of like not really great movies. And so he was just like, I'll, I'll direct whatever, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's weird that the director of the Manchurian candidate in seven days in May and any number of other movies would just be seen as sort of a stock director that they just need to bring in who can like make this thing make a little bit more sense. Um, but it's a very interesting documentary um, made in my opinion, more interesting if you've seen the Frankenheimer and Dr. Moreau and but as you as you look at like some of the storyboards, as you look at um, uh, you look at some of the story ideas that uh, that uh, Richard Stanley, Richard Stanley, that's correct, right? I wrote this down. Yeah, Richard Stanley. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, for some reason that that seemed like not the right name. Um, the ideas that he was going to be exploring it sounded so amazing. That was going to be my question because that was my my issue. With Jodorowsky's Dune is that everyone's like, wow, what, like, this movie sounds amazing. And I feel like I'm looking around like, am I taking crazy pills? This movie mm-hmm. sounds like there's no way it could have been good. This sounds yeah. like a complete disaster. So do you, you actually think that uh, his, that, that Richard Stanley's uh, Island of Dr. Murrow would have been a good movie? Yes. Well, yes. It would have been insane. It probably wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. But I think not it would have been it for me. What was that? That's not a prerequisite. Yeah, for absolutely. Me. I mean, it barely. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense as it is. Um, and you had like a workman, you know, a workman type director like John Frankenheimer in there trying his best, but um, to just make sense of all the chaos. Um, but it just would have been, you know, the reason that Richard Stanley was fired is because he just he could not manage that crew. He didn't know what to do. He he had never worked on anything this big, and then his his vision for the film was just too strange and the executives thought like oh maybe we need to rethink this and uh and then noted crazy person uh marlon brando and just the amount of control that he had um just by force of will um like you've seen it. Have you seen? I never uh, have. No. Okay. So the idea of him having like the white pancake makeup and there's a scene where, uh, they worked it out so that there's like an ice bucket hat because uh-huh. his character's always hot. And, uh, and so he'll just be sitting there and they pour ice in the top of his ice bucket hat. And so it's basically like sitting right on top of his head inside this bucket. That all came from Brando, of course, yeah. of course. And, um, and that's what makes, that's what makes the movie crazy and wonderful. Um, and, uh, and again, just batshit insane. And so there's a documentary of just sort of how that fell apart. But it, the tragic thing is that 
Richard Stanley really, he was up and coming as far as, uh, being a, a genre director. And this experience soured him so much on that, that he got away from directing for a long time and really has not gone back in any kind of meaningful way. So that's the tragic part of it. We should do an episode, a main episode of on movies that weren't made. I agree. Or, you know, I agree. I mean, we could do one just about documentaries, but you yeah. named three. There's also like man of La Mancha. Yeah. And, uh, probably some others that I'm, yeah, undoubtedly. Um, anyway, uh, why don't you said you had two, two TV things. Why don't you talk about the first one of yours? Since okay. I one. Um, I watched season two of Bojack Horseman. Okay. You um, watched all of it already. Yeah. It's only it, a few days old, right? Yeah, but it's, that's very much a show that I can watch while I'm working. Okay. Um, and I and you you're not a huge fan of BoJack Horseman. I've only right? like, seen the Christmas special, and I okay. didn't. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I they, it's sort of like. Did you ever read the novel American Psycho? No, oh, no. It's you like, told me enough about it. Yeah, it's like Brady Stanois set a task for himself. He more than accomplished it. As far as what he wanted to make, he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I read it. I don't think. I I don't think I could be said to have enjoyed it. Yeah. And that's how I felt about in a much much smaller way the Bojack Horseman Christmas special because it's such a conceptual thing mm-hmm. like it's not cuz they they show it's essentially in its entirety the Christmas special that his yeah. of his his sitcom from the 90s, yeah. right? Horsing around. And it's not like a parody of bad 90s like sitcoms. Yeah. It's just an episode of a bad sitcom. Yeah. And I found that like, wow, they really did it, but I don't know that I enjoyed yeah. any of that. And I do think you would appreciate that more in the larger context of of the show because this is a guy who's been living off of this terrible sitcom (laughs) you know for years um and what i've liked what i've always liked about the show is it's it's willingness to go incredibly incredibly dark and season two it gets even darker at times even though the character has moments of of triumph and uh and it's really uh, and some really great voice acting as well a friend of the show paul of tompkins uh does some of the best work I've ever seen him do, uh, as the character, Mr. Peanut butter, um, <laughs> who's a dog and, uh, and just, and he's like a golden retriever and he's just always upbeat and happy. Uh-huh. And so there, so there's a, a moment when he has, uh, he has a cone over his, uh, over his neck because he broke his arm. Uh-huh. And so he has to wear the cone to keep himself from biting at his arm. And he said, he's like, and it's you have to imagine it's you know pft uh-huh. just being like being like oh yes this i saw what i thought was another dog and it was just a mirror and i was ang- and and i and i thought it was wearing my clothes and i was so angry at that dog <laughs> so i think he like hits the mirror and shatters it or something like that and just but always with a big smile on his face and and will arnett does uh, really solid work it's just it's a it's a good it was a good season, and and I think you should uh, give the show another well, watch. I'm going to be watching the first episode of the second season. Oh, okay. For, hey, watch this. It's what Paul is making me watch this week. Uh, all right, I. Th- <laughs> it's tough stuff. I'll all say right. that. Uh, the one thing I wanted to talk about was I finally got. I'm still catching up on TV post Comic Con, and obviously I'm instead of watching TV, I'm watching Dance in the Dark mm-hmm. and Duck Soup. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of TV to catch up on. So I finally finished off season three of Inside Amy Schumer. Okay fantastic season i would say overall best season of the three okay um here's what i will say about the finale 
All right. This is the third year in a row. Do you know who the, I don't know what to call it, comedian, performer, Bridget Everett is? Do you know who she is? I do not know who that is. Okay. She's a um, New York-based, almost like a comedic, like raunchy cabaret singer Mm -hmm. thing. And there are a lot of people, a lot of New York-based people that I'm big fans of who really hold her in high regard. And this is each of the three seasons has of inside Amy Schumer has ended with instead of an Amy Schumer bit, just uh, a bridge ever performance because mm-hmm. inside Amy Schumer is first and foremost, a sketch show, but it also has stand up in it and also has man on the street interviews and mm-hmm. it also has other segments that they do. So it's not entirely a sketch show. This is, so this isn't completely out of left field, Okay, but each one ends with a bridge ever performance. And I got to say, I don't get it. No, I don't get the appeal of her act. It feels like the kind of thing that like old, boring people would be delightfully scandalized by, you know, (laughs) like the late show on a cruise ship, you know, (laughs) like you wouldn't believe your father and I stayed up. (laughs) You wouldn't believe the things this woman was saying. That's like the kind of impression I get from Bridget Everett's performance. Uh, can you give an example, uh, of something? Uh, well, the, f- the song that I think is her, mo- her trademark song and that ended the first season is essentially just, it's like a list of the basic song is a list of the different shapes that breasts can take. So she has things like she's got them pancake titties and she says titties the whole time. Right. And she's got like, that's, that's that's the that's pretty much the entire song that's 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 pretty much the key to what her the song she did in this uh one was called put your dick away uh and she basically mostly is just a repetition of that line uh i i I don't get the appeal of uh, so people know who this person is in in the new york scene okay she's a name okay so this seems like amy schumer has some success this woman undoubtedly uh maybe influenced her or that she has a great deal of respect for yeah. to be and to be fair i knew who bridget Everett was before inside amy schumer okay. because okay. i listened to a lot of new york podcast comedians sure. and stuff like that sure um podcast comedians that's a thing now it is yeah um and so it was her saying like oh i love this person and not enough people know about her and it's just like and they do this and then after a while you start to think yeah maybe there's a reason not a whole lot of people know about her <laughs> yeah and she i mean she doesn't just do she shows up in sketches and she actually has a small part in train wreck too which oh, okay is fine um and i well, i think she's funny when she's in these in these sketches mm-hmm. uh but it's like the her trademark act i just don't i don't get what the appeal of what the appeal what the appeal is of it well especially when you see and this sounds super shitty and i haven't seen it either but just based on like what you're talking about um i could see it being the kind of thing that influence people who would then go on to explore that a little bit more like amy schumer yeah and then it's like oh that's great it's like and here's who started it all it's like oh (laughs) okay (laughs) That's interesting, you know, and again, I haven't seen it. So you know what? Maybe if I were to watch it and hear these funny, funny songs, uh, maybe I would laugh uproariously. But if I had to guess, I'd say no. Yeah, I have. um, I have this book that is a reprint of a book from, I guess, the 1800s that it was it it was like Mark Twain's collection of comedic short stories. And it's not Mm -hmm. that's not what it's called, but it essentially it was 
actually curated a, a collection of short stories, includes some Mark Twain short stories, but they were curated by Mark Twain and they're mm-hmm. all comedic in nature. And most of them are just about like people getting hit in the head really hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's weird how comedy builds. It's yeah. like, yeah, Mark Twain, there's the co- a comedy award named after Mark Twain. He's yeah. like one of the forefathers of American comedy and American literature. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we, we have grown a little bit in terms of sophistication of what we find funny. It, it reminds me of, and God help me, I'm, I'm about to quote Family Guy, but uh, one of their little, you know, something will stick when you throw that much shit at the wall. Uh-huh. Um, no, I still, I, like, I don't like Family Guy, but I still say one in five jokes. Yeah, oh, sure. Or, it's yeah. And there was one where, and I don't even remember a lot of the context, but it's sort of, it 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 cuts to just these these old-fashioned stuffed shirt types uh-huh. and one saying and one says i say do you know what's very very funny a woman a man wearing woman's clothing and everyone's like oh, yes quite <laughs> and just uh and i and i'm sure i butchered the context of that but just it, it's sort of it's sort of that and it's like yeah all right good for good for you and you know what uh i'm sure amy schumer probably did feel like she was influenced by her and, and maybe they have a close friendship and she wants to help out her friend and, and, and get her exposure, which she is getting and good for her. You know, uh, yeah. I won't begrudge her that. All right. You got one more thing. We have a hard out. So let's yeah, rush um, through it. I finally went back after sort of inspired by the panel. I went back and, and what and started watching Archer again. Uh, I watched the first two seasons. Oh, so then I watched the three parter kickoff of season three where he become he's off on an island somewhere he becomes a pirate king yeah. and all that sort of thing um and it's enjoyable um i've always loved their violence it's why it's it's why i think the the paul feig film spy is very much inspired by uh by archer because the spy part and the violent part they do not hold back yeah. at all um, the first episode of archer i ever saw I think it's from season two. And then I went back and watched the rest was the one at the ski lodge. Do you mm-hmm. know that one? I think so. Yes. And you see like two of the bad guys having a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a petty like argument. Yeah. And the ca- like the camera, whatever it is, pulls back and they're next to the bodies of the two bellboys. They've murdered. And yes. Taken their clo- yes. There's two dead bodies on the floor while they're having this petty argument. Yeah. It's like, yeah, dark and hilarious. And that really sold me on the show. But the weird thing that got me is that in watching it, I think, I think the voice acting is great. Um, I think everybody's doing really great work. I think the animation is beautiful. Um, and I enjoy the story and, and that sort of thing. But there are certain things that I notice from time to time, the recurring jokes that they will hit over and over and over again, like in that three parter, like the idea of something being an idiom. Uh-huh. Now, if you want to say that, let's say it's a three parter. So it's all, it's basically like one long 90 minute episode. So if you want to look at it like that to a certain extent, and there's, but there's also it's designed to be watched with a week in between each half hour. Sure, right? I guess that's true. But even, but that's the thing, even within each one, it's, there's like six, seven, uh-huh. you know, references to yeah, it. It's and a just, thin line. They walk. And I think with the vice, rough. with the vice season, which I don't know if you ever watched, hmm. I think they, that's where they cross the line. I don't like that season very much. And a lot of it is because they have, it seems like there's, it's not just that there's running jokes is that there's only running jokes. Like there's, yeah. it feels like there's a half dozen jokes in that season yeah. and they just keep recycling them. But there are other jokes that they do to this day mm-hmm. that aren't even jokes that are things like, uh, Lana saying, Nope. <laughs> like that will always make me laugh. <laughs> well, and then the, it, it is a recurring thing and it is a joke, I guess. And it's just, Archer trying to get Lana's attention and just <laughs> Lana, Lana, Lana. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, good yeah. stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm eager to keep watching it. Yeah. That's a show that can have an entire season, like the vice season that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And I'm perfectly willing to forgive it because when it's on, it's so on yeah. and the, the, the after vice season, season six was very hit or miss. There were mm-hmm. some fantastic episodes and there are some, that were kind of a waste of time. Uh, so but wait, I'm still so what is the vice season? Which one is that? That's five. That's five. Okay. So yeah. that's, I'm still just starting out three. So I've got a while to get there to uh, anticipate it. Okay. So that's a bummer. All right. Uh, that's it. Bye. Bye.